Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, global economics tend to be cross, I guess there's cross currents as best you could say. We're getting certainly some very weak numbers coming out of Europe, uh, even uh, Germany, which tends to lead the European Union. We have the Chinese economy still growing, but at a slower rate. And here in the U.S., kind of some cross currents. The manufacturing sector showing some signs of weakness, yet the consumer remains quite strong. So to get a sense of kind of where we are on the economic outlook, we welcome Constance Hunter. She is a chief economist for KPMG, joins us on the phone. Constance, thanks so much for joining us. I guess let's start with the consumer. We got the retail sales this morning came out a little bit better than expected, suggesting that, you know, despite a lot of the uncertainty in the market, the consumer remains generally pretty strong. Yeah, it was a it was a pretty good report, but we're also getting to the point where we need to parse uh, the signal from the noise. So uh, as we proceed through the remainder of the year, uh, because retail sales is a nominal data series and not adjusted for inflation, uh, we may start to see some strength in areas where tariffs are being applied. So we may begin to see price increases or what seems like more consumption. And it's important to consider uh, what have prices done in those areas? Are those really um, real increases or are they just nominal increases due to some, some pockets of inflation due to tariffs? So that's the first thing. Um, and the second thing is just to sort of consider where we are in relationship to last year. So uh, when, we, when we look um, at the control group, which is obviously excluding autos, gasoline, and building materials, it's up year over year, and um, it is doing better than uh, 2018. So 2018 was up 4.7%. We did a, we did a three-month moving average just to kind of smooth out some of the noise, and even with that, this most recent report showed a year-over-year increase of 4.9%. So that gives us some uh, hope that the consumer is remaining strong. With that said, it's um, one of these uh, what I would call Rorschach tests, Uh, you know, pieces of data. There's something in there for everybody, uh, depending upon what you want to see. So um, one area of concern was the decline in food services and drinking establishments. Um, So that was up at about 6.5% pace in 2018. And this most recent report takes it down below 3%. So so that does give us a little bit of pause. It tends to be one of the more uh, leading indicators Mm -hmm. of how consumers are feeling. Um, So we'll be watching that closely to see if it rebounds in the next couple months. Constance, how concerned were you about that ISM data that came out recently? I think last week that came in at a 49.1 reading suggesting that the uh, manufacturing economy in the U.S. is contracting. How concerned are you about that overall? So first I would say we within any given business cycle, often go through sort of what I would call mini manufacturing recessions. Um, So uh, it's not always a cause for concern, but to me, um, what what we're seeing is we're seeing it with a confluence of other things that are concerning, right? So we see this um, it's, it's, first of all, global in nature. Uh, second of all, it is coming uh, at a time where we've had six consecutive quarters of negative real estate investment. It's coming at a time where we see broad business investment slowing rather substantially. Um, and so it is, uh, it is something we're watching very co- closely and where in the past we may not have been 
as concerned uh, that it would spill over into the consumer. That's that's why we're watching something like this um, eating and drinking establishments to determine, hey, you know what? We're seeing this little decline here in this somewhat leading indicator of how consumers are feeling. Let's keep our finger on the pulse of that to see if that is a sign that this manufacturing recession is spilling over to the services economy. Right. So, you know, we here at Bloomberg Radio, we thought that ECB news we got yesterday about the, you know, the rate cut and then really the QE infinity, if you will, was really big news. What was your takeaway? Well, one, I think it was pretty expected. Uh, so, uh, nevertheless, I think uh, markets, if you look at the FX markets, you know, w- while it may have been expected, it certainly wasn't fully priced in. Right. Um, and I think it raises a lot of questions. Um, it raises a lot of questions if this is uh, effective, if it's going to result in uh, the turnaround uh, in the European economies that uh, that central bankers are hoping. And I think Draghi made it pretty clear that monetary policy cannot be the only one doing the heavy lifting, that in uh, certain economies, in certain cases, we need to see fiscal policy step in and, and, and give an assist to monetary policy, because if we leave it all up to monetary policy, especially when we're at negative rates, um, you know, it's, it's not going to necessarily yield the results that they're hoping for. So, Constance, next week we have uh, the Fed uh, decision. So, uh, obviously, the market's pricing in uh, a Fed rate cut. Kind of what is your view of how they will play it over the next, call it, uh, I don't know, six to 12 months? Yeah, so I, I hate to use this phrase because it, I don't mean it to be a cop out, but it is, I think, going to be data dependent. Um, they have they they went from a stance of hiking three times this year to jawboning and saying, "Listen, we're going to um, be patient." To now, they're in what uh, what Powell termed a mid-cycle adjustment uh, and hoping that it's it's like the 1990s when when there were two sort of mid-cycle adjustments uh, and certainly the sectors that are interest rate sensitive, uh, like manufacturing, that is an interest rate sensitive sector. So lower rates should help that sector. Also, we saw, as I mentioned earlier, that um, decline in residential investment. Uh, we've seen uh, mortgage rates come down almost 100 basis points. That should certainly help real estate. Um, one of the things people are pointing to in this increase in, in auto sales today is, is that uh, car loans have come down. And so they're going to watch and be and and look at the data and right. see has has what we've done um, caused interest rate sensitive sectors to see a rebound. Yep. Uh, in which case we may not need to we may not be in a full blown rate cutting yep. cycle. I think um, one of the things the Fed is well aware of, and I think the market is pretty aware of it. Uh, it uh, is also, the risk, yeah, it's kind of over overdoing it, perhaps. Uh, Constance, we're gonna have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, Constance Hunter, chief economist for KPMG, giving us her thoughts on, you know, kind of the strong retail sales numbers we had out today, and what does that mean for uh, the Fed going forward? Is are we in an easing moment or just a mid-cycle adjustment? Well, our recent IPOs just over the last several months have had some rocky waves. Um, you know, we've had a very successful, one very successful 
uh, IPO in recent times back from uh, late 2019 was Zoom Video Communications. That stock is up about 120% uh, from its IPO. Uh, to get the latest on what is moving Zoom Video Communications, we welcome Kelly Steckelberg. Kelly is a Chief Financial Officer for Zoom Video Communications, and that company is based in San Jose, California. Uh, Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a sense of, I know you guys reported earnings a couple of weeks ago. What's What did you really talk about? What are you seeing in your business right now in your earnings and, and your current outlook? Sure. Thanks for having me. We had a really great, strong second quarter. We announced Q2 revenue of $146 million, growing 96% year over year. And we also were profitable from a gap and a non-gap basis, which I think our investors are super excited about, delivering a non-gap um, operating margin of 14%, along with a little over $30 million in operating cash flow. One thing that's interesting is that this growth has come despite the fact that we talk a lot about companies withdrawing some of the spending that they have been uh, making on just their businesses, expanding new technologies, et cetera, in light of some of the uh, trade disputes and, and sort of the uncertainty. What have you been seeing there in terms of how much businesses are willing to spend on their sort of internal infrastructure? Yeah, so Zoom is great, right? We're a video-first communication platform that's really changing the way that, that people work and customers, you know, people serve their customers. An example of this is we actually are super excited to announce that HSBC became a customer in Q2. It was the largest initial deal to date. They are standardizing um, on Zoom across, you know, 67 countries, 3,900 offices, and they bought 290,000 host licenses. So, that's a company that's really embracing this video-first platform, and I think we expect to see that even as people are consolidating or conserving in other areas of spend, they see that this can really make their employees more efficient. So, uh, Kelly, another IPO that is about to hit the market, uh, hopefully, potentially, is WeWork. Give us a sense of how you know, your company's impacted by the distributed workforce. We're seeing the gig economy. Um, is that a net positive for you? It is because what Zoom allows is even in the gig economy is for people to take their communications virtual office with them anywhere that they go. You can access Zoom from any platform, any device, anywhere. So with our, some of our cool features like virtual background, you can join a meeting from your PC or from your phone and put up a virtual background so it looks as if you're in an office or Beach. So that makes it really easy for people to be very productive, even sitting in, for example, a WeWork office, maybe surrounded by you know other people, but they want to give the impression that they're sitting in, in a different location. When we talk about the pace of growth, this company obviously is growing exponentially as reflected by its share prices, reflected by the enthusiasm of many investors going forward. Where do you see the biggest case for expansion here for your business? So they, we have four key growth pillars that we're working on in Zoom. It's continued expansion into the app market and enterprise. HSBC is a perfect example of that. International expansion. Today, international is about 20% of our revenue. So we see tremendous opportunities there as well. We have about eight sales offices around the globe and see no reason in the future why international can't contribute to 50% of our revenue. We also have a new product Zoom phone. So this is a product that was launched in Q1, and it is our cloud PDX solution and super, super early days for this product, and yet we're excited about the traction that we're making. We announced that there is a global luxury brand that bought Zoom phone in Q2, 
and they're using the product not only for their corporate offices, but also rolling it out to all of their retail locations. So really excited to see a brand like that using Zoom Phone this early in the game. And then also Zoom Rooms, which is our conference room solution. And this seamlessly brings video communications into the conference rooms in a way that it hasn't been done before in a very cost-effective way. Kelly, give us a sense of kind of the competitive landscape for you guys. I think when I think of kind of this business, I think about maybe some big telecommunications companies or big, you know, services companies. Who do you compete against and, and how do you position yourself? Yeah, you're exactly right. When we go into the enterprise, an enterprise organization, for example, there's typically an incumbent and it's typically, you know, Cisco and WebEx solutions are in there. That's who we're, we're seeing compete with. And then in the mass market, we often are competing either with free solutions or other online providers like LogMeIn. Kelly Steckelberg, thank you so much for being with us. Kelly Steckelberg is Chief Financial Officer of Zoom Video Communications, uh, joining us from San Jose, California. Zoom uh, has been one IPO that has absolutely skyrocketed since uh, since when it came out earlier this year, up more than 122%. And interestingly enough, I remember when this uh, first landed and how well it performed, and people said, see, it actually matters if they make money. Right. If they're not burning cash, investors like that. And Zoom is delivered again, yep. uh, which sort of shows, you know, perhaps it's less, you know, the, the sort of sexy dream of some of these right. companies of, 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 you know, community adjusted Avita, but rather the reality of cash. Talking about stocks that have been doing very well, let's talk Smartsheet. Uh, the CEO currently in our uh, studios here, our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios, Mark Mader, Chief Executive Officer of this company. Um, he joins us. And before we get into the nitty gritty of your business, what do you do? We help companies unlock the potential of their people. And for too long- Oh, come on. We what do, does that mean? We do. That sounds like a WeWork so IPO. We, I mean, so we, for too long, have, have relegated our team members to doing- I would say that the, the core fundamentals of productivity, send a message, create a document, have a, do a video conversation. These are all fundamentally important to how we work. I actually believe and we believe that workers need to do more. They can participate in more. How do you automate something? How do you actually provide structure to something? How do you put something on the rails so your business can achieve more? And we believe that it's not just the six or seven percent of the IT population who should be enabling businesses. We think that median employees should participate in those ways. So how do you elevate them from tracking in spreadsheets year over year over year to improving how the process actually works so they can achieve more? Okay, so this is different. We just had the CFO of Zoom on just before you came on talking about their company. You guys are different from Zoom and Slack, right? We are. I mean, we're happy customers of both of those companies. Okay. <laughs> and they're, they're great communication platforms. I think the difference is when you communicate on something and you agree to do something, where does that thing live? The things that we just agreed to, those accountabilities, yep. whether it's a project, a process, or a program, what do we do with it? We don't just talk about it. We actually need a reference point. And for years, people have used spreadsheets as the reference point. And we're now looking to provide them a better vehicle for those types of things. So you have, I think you said 80,000 customers, we paid do. customers? We do. And uh, they, they, sp they span a whole host of different industries. How customized does this software have to be for each business? Highly configured. And the reason I, I say that word instead of custom, when I hear customization, I think of development and cost and complexity. Yes. Configuration is the human being wants to make a change, let them make a change. 
tailor that column definition, the name of the column, what's in the pick list, what's in the checkbox, let them define it. Don't go out and create a spec and have someone else do it for you. When you connect the person to actually defining what that tracking mechanism is, they care about it more because they were involved in its definition. That's how you create advocacy and engagement. Simply receiving something from someone else who built it, I think lets us abandon things a little more easily. So is this, it would, I'm trying to think your competitive environment, would this be like a Microsoft? Because in Microsoft Office and things like that is, so how, who do you really compete against in this space? It's really a new category where you have, um, you're, you're bringing together a number of concepts. You're bringing together intake, collection through forms. You're bringing together a tracking mechanism, which has almost some database type, mm, yeah, type constructs yeah. to it. You have reportability. Now, you could easily say all of those technologies were done 20 years ago, Mark. They've been around forever. But I would challenge and say, have they been accessible to people? It's not the definition of a new concept. It's can you make it consumable and accessible by the majority of people in a business? And that is where you get that enrollment, that's where you get the value creation. So I'm trying to understand the advantage to this versus just throwing your files up into the cloud and being like, you guys, it's your job, check it out. If you don't do it, you're fired. Uh, that's, that's a fairly draconian way of running a business. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> perhaps. She's a fixed income person. That's kind of how they look at it. I either get paid or I don't get paid. We, we, found, that, we found that the modern employee does not respond yes. to such, such a posture. He, uh, it was soft, Lisa, soft. he's from Seattle. He's from Seattle. He's not from New York. Here's some coffee. Sit down. Yeah. Let's yeah. talk I, about I your think, performance. So I think people have choice today. And, and I think when, when you thrust them into an area of, of uh, sort of aggressive, take it or leave it, people will leave it. People will absolutely leave it. And I think when, when more people understand that there, is, that there is a better way, they will embrace it. What's frustrating, though, is that when we talk about all this goodness of technology, one of the reasons things like Zoom have done well is because it's accessible. So when you help that person achieve something, that loyalty goes up. But the, it is, when you change behavior, it's difficult, right? So it has to be easy enough. It's not just, do you see value in the idea? Can I have a win with it? What I'm hearing is the website's pretty and it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, that's, that's basically because ultimately it's a, it's a sort of more complicated idea to track everything. But it sounds like, you know, if you make the interface easy enough, people will actually use it, engage with it, Correct. and all of a sudden it becomes useful. Correct. So I'm looking, um, uh, Mark, at uh, my Bloomberg terminal, looking at the uh, SMAR as a symbol for your company. Mm -hmm. Looking at over a couple of years, the streets got you growing, you know, 30, 40, 50% top line. Um, but I don't see profitability. I don't see cash flow positive. And that's historically, if you look at a Lyft or an Uber or some of these other recent tech companies that have come public, the market's kind of pushed back on that lack of profitability. How come your stock has kind of weathered that? Have you indicated that to your investors that you do in fact have a path to profitability? Yeah, I think one of the reasons why they're, they're, they're so supportive of the company is we've, we've exercised really, I have to say, sound fiscal discipline. So we're growing organically over 50%. We're investing because our market's less than 2% penetrated. So when you're retaining on a percentage basis 134% as a subscription provider, they encourage you to grow. Now, you need to do that with discipline, but that balance between our free cash flow and our growth rate, it's decidedly healthy. And uh, they're strongly encouraging us to pursue that opportunity. Where are you seeing the biggest potential for growth regionally? Well, when, when you're in a 2% penetrated market, even though we're still growing extraordinarily well in the U.S., 
U.S. represents a little over 75% of our revenue. So we see both massive growth in our home country. We see it internationally, where we have a presence, uh, a team in the U.K. We're expanding, as we said, on our earnings call into Asia-Pac as the next stop with our direct team. But we also see new markets. We were one of the few SaaS companies that was recently approved at the federal level for the FedRAM program. So now we're looking to bring all the benefits that the commercial sector has had to the agencies. And we see such a shortage of valuable solutions for this for this population. So what are the key, I mean, I know you mentioned international, but are there some industry verticals that represent growth areas for you guys? Because I get them, when I see 40, 50% top line growth, I kind of wonder where's it coming from and how sustainable is it? Yeah, there, there's some obvious categories like media um, and, and technology, which are, are highly cross company in their collaborative needs. So right, yeah. a tool like ours beautifully fits into that. But what I would also say is I can't think of an industry today that is internally focused only. So the pressure for companies to reach outside of their walls is greater than ever. Uh, so it's really uh, it's why we serve such a diverse group of customers. Real quick, acquisitions, anything in the uh, offing? Yeah, we, we've just done two in the last six months. So we're, we're bringing those to market right now. But we're absolutely looking at both. One of the reasons we did our follow-on in June. What happens if some big tech company wants to come along and buy you? Well, I think it's something where, you know, you, you focus on controlling your destiny to the best of your ability. Create a valuable product, have raving fan customers, do it globally, and maintain that optionality. But don't put yourself into a box where you're forced to make that decision. Mark Hader, thanks. Uh, uh, Mater, thanks so much for joining us. Mark is the CEO of Smart Sheet. Again, trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol SMAR. Joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We appreciate you coming in, Mark. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.